Is America losing itself? Millions don't care and don't even know what goes into making America tick. They don't think of themselves as citizens, maybe just as residents of the state where they happen temporarily to live and merely residents of the nation that secures their well-being and liberties. Because citizenship means nothing, borders mean nothing. Is this situation sustainable? We're going to discuss these questions and more during today's episode of Independent Conversations. Hello, everybody. I'm Graham Walker coming to you from the Independent Institute here in Oakland, California. We're just across the bay from San Francisco, and uh, our mission is to try to equip the citizen, yes, the citizen, with serious information, evidence-based commentary, and uh, from a perspective that is independent and perhaps atypical uh, in our era. And to discuss this question of citizenship today, it is really a pleasure to have with us uh, Victor Davis Hansen from the Hoover Institution, who has written the book on the subject of citizenship. Welcome, Victor Davis Hansen. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. <clears throat> uh, I've got a copy of your book behind my right shoulder here, The Dying Citizen. We're going to come back to that in a minute. But first, if you don't mind, Victor, I want to brag on you just for a couple moments. So okay. our friend, friends know, they probably know who you are. They see you on TV all the time. But maybe some of them don't know that you are the Anderson Senior Fellow uh, in the Hoover Institution. Um, we are very proud that you're a member of the Board of Advisors for the, the Independent Institute and for our quarterly journal, The Independent Review. Uh, Dr. Hansen is a classicist. <clears throat> he has won the National Humanities Medal, the Bradley Prize, among other things. Uh, I think you are the author of hundreds of articles and reviews and editorials on things among them, including Greek agrarian and military history and essays on contemporary culture, all of which are worth reading. Uh, you wrote a book called The End of Sparta, another one uh, that's on my list to read, Makers of Ancient Strategy from the Persian Wars to the Fall of Rome. Uh, and your latest book, uh, as I mentioned, is called The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America. Um, you are also a native son of California, and I believe that you're coming to us from your family's multi-generation farm in the Central Valley. Is that right? Yes, I am. Yeah. In other words, I think you exemplify uh, what's increasingly rare today. Um, that is to say, you're rooted in your place. Yeah. Uh, your family is from there, you're there, your history is there, you continue from there. Uh, not unlike myself, uh, also a native son of California. Uh, and having a sense of loyalty to California is a pretty rare thing these days. I don't, I don't meet many people who feel that way about California. Right. California makes it hard to stay here because they have this odd combination of having the highest basket of taxes in terms of sales, gasoline, income. Uh, taxes and some of the worst return on it in terms of how their state ranks in infrastructure, education, crime, et cetera, right. business climate. So we're squeezing out the middle and becoming a feudal society of the very, very wealthy along the coast and everybody right. else who's mostly lower middle class, if that, in the interior. People don't realize that they think of that as the pattern of America as a whole, but very specifically California. We've yeah, got these two slices and they kind of run vertically, one on the left, one on the right, yeah. if you're looking at the map. I think people don't understand that California is kind of a model. It is in so many ways of what the United States becomes. So right. I hope everybody listening learns from us in the negative. Don't follow yeah, Well, exactly. Example. Don't follow exactly. Please don't, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> I mean, we're here, uh, as I said, in the shadow of San Francisco and 
Uh, I love San Francisco, um, but it has been an ex example of some of the worst decisions. Uh, so here at the Independent Institute, one of my kind of personal slogans is stop the spread. <laughs> yeah. stop, the sp stop the spread of pernicious ideas here where they get going on the West Coast. Yeah, I, heard, I kind of looked for, I was watching um, Vertigo the other day, which has some pictures of San Francisco's downtown in 1950. Mm. And I was noticing the people were very well dressed. The streets were immaculate. <laughs> and the shops were, were were just immaculate and everything oh. was very peaceful and I, that was what i remember in the 1960s and yet i went to, there recently and it was out of i don't know what to say escape from new york or uh, some type of 1970s uh armageddon movie oh boy <laughs> yeah well i was growing up in california too uh, my father always reminded me that, you know, when you go into the city to do business in San Francisco, you always wear a suit and tie. Um, I think that has kind of changed. Yeah, I think that's been gone for a half century. It's been gone. At and, least. And, and looking further back, you know, San Francisco, I, I'm going to get to your subject in a second. But, you know, we're talking about our state. San Francisco actually was for um, a long time, some generations, the great conservative city of the West. I remember that. George it's Christopher the, was mayor and... Both were the days where Christopher was a moderate Republican and Sam Yorty was sort of a moderate, I guess, what was he, a Democrat Republican in between mm. in Los Angeles. And uh, those were the days before Reagan even. And, even before Reagan. And then, of yeah. course, looking further backward generationally, San Francisco was the city, first city in the West to have the grid of streets that looks like, you know, New York. It, um, did. it did. It was the place of the museums, the art galleries, the churches, the banks, I can remember the libraries. As a kid reading Look magazine about all the puff pieces on the LAX airport, it was ahead of its time. And then the LA freeway system with the clover leaves, mm -hmm. the tripartite UC uh, State College and community college educational system was a model for the country. Everything was a model. And then it was. We kind of ruined it. We took our inheritance and squandered it. Or, Whatever. It's a shame. Yeah. And as I say, uh, very rarely do I meet people nowadays who, who even might say or think, um, I'm a citizen of California. <laughs> I, I, I never hear any, anyone say that. Uh, and so that gets us to our subject today, citizenship and the fate of it. Um, you're kind of gloomy, gloomy on its prospects. Um, uh, let me take you kind of toward the the depth of the problem, if I could begin there with you, Victor. Um, you say in your book, uh, The Dying Citizen, um, that history is mostly the story of non-citizenship and that citizenship came quite late to civilization. Um, so can you, before we get back to contemporary America or California, um, can you tell me how citizenship, how did citizenship emerge in the ancient world? which was, after all, largely characterized either by dispersed tribalism or by concentrated imperial despotism. How did citizenship emerge back in the ancient times? We have some idea because Aristotle had some sources that we don't have, and he wrote about that very topic in the politics. And then we have archaeological remains, epigraphical. And it seems somewhere in the 8th or uh, early 7th century, say 700 BC, 7. 50 BC, only in Greece and not elsewhere, uh, there appeared these polis, these city-states, and they came out of the dark ages under population pressure. 
and a lot of, not some of them were autocracies uh oligarchies some of them were ty tyrannies but there were some that were what we would call broad-based uh i think the term the greeks used was politeia they had a constitutional system and, and when you read about them and what people said about them in the oral tradition in, by the fifth and sixth century there was a sense they were that constitutional government and citizenship came to protect property that mm -hmm. people who farm vines and olives that have a lot of investment wanted to have title to that property and they wanted to pass it on to their children through inheritance laws and they didn't want it confiscated or expropriated and out of that um there was also the idea that they were going to be militiamen or hoplites or mm -hmm. soldiers of the polis. And then they were speakers of the assembly. And they have all these words for them, um, mesoi, middle people, middle people. Midmost in the city would I be, Fulkilides, the poet says. So there was mm -hmm. a chauvinism of the middle class. And that then spread. And there were variations all over the Greek world. Some of them were very broad-based and the property qualifications was quite low so they were as in athens radical democracies almost and some of them were narrow oligarchies where maybe only 25 percent of the free population voted but uh that was the beginning of it and it didn't catch on in the east at all and right. it did catch on in rome it went west but not east west sort of it didn't get into iberia or northern europe but it did get in, into Italy, and Italy, I guess, because of their proximity to Sicily's proximity to northern Greece, et cetera, et cetera. They did, they did, they did a little different way. They tried to copy the Cretan and the um, Spartan model of tripartite government, where they had a judiciary, an executive, and a legislative branch. It's fascinating your comment about how. Um, what, at 5th and 6th century BC, is that when the concept of citizen begins to emerge in, in Greece? I got the dating right? Yeah, I think that's when you start to see the word citizen, yeah, citizen okay. in Greek, politeis, starts politeis, to appear yeah. on Greek inscriptions as so, somebody that's not just a serf or a subject or a resident mm -hmm. or a slave. So the the your account of it a moment ago is, is extremely intriguing because uh, there was an element of self-regard or self-interest uh, which drove perhaps the historical development. Namely, if you had invested in vines uh, or, or olive trees, um, you wanted some security of title. And so um, by trying to find a way to secure their own investment, as it were, in such productive properties, these incipient citizens sought something like what we now know as uh, a becoming citizens and having legal title, uh, they, in some ways, by looking out for themselves, became great benefactors of mankind. I think that today we have this idea that freedom is a natural order of things. It might be the natural aspiration. And in some cases in Germany or out with the Native Americans, it's, a, it's just a, an artifact of very few people living per square mile and you can do as you please. But the idea of liberty, the ability to live in a congested area with people and then protect an individual's rights, that was new. And that followed, I think, from concerns about property. And it does everywhere. We kind of deprecate property. I think Mayor Fryer, Fryer, Fry in Minneapolis said that hmm. when they burned down the police precinct, that was just mere brick and mortar. Or I think it was Nicole Hannah-Jones, the architect of 1619 Project, said, 
destroying property is not violence, but actually in our own revolution, it was the founders insistence that the property that they had acquired and the capital that they had should not be subject to taxation without representation that prompted uh, this, this revolution of our own. So property and the ability to keep what you've earned on your own is a very powerful and the most powerful stimulus for constitutional government, at least historically. You note uh, that the development of the sense of citizenship uh, always entailed a kind of pushing toward inclusion and some tension between who was and who wasn't included as citizens. For example, I was very struck that you said, uh, it is certainly no accident, I'm quoting you, it is certainly no accident that in democratic Athens, the heroes and tragic title as, as well of most of Euripides' plays were women, Alcestis, and Andromache, Andromeda, Antigone, Hecuba, Helen, etc. Um, you note that they, uh, the playwright was thereby in some ways tweaking the fact that these notable heroic women were not fully included as citizens. There's always that tension, apparently, even in antiquity. Yeah, and there's also complaints in the Socratic corpus and also in comedy that although only male citizens could vote, they were heavily influenced by their marriage partner that females who ran the household or children even had input into this. So although technically under the law they could vote, they saw themselves as representative of a particular family consensus often. That's not to justify the exclusion of women, which was debated. And even the, the exclusion of slaves was, I mean, Alcadamus, the great tradition said, God has made no man a slave. So that these were all And up, this is the fifth, fourth or fifth century BC? Uh, fifth and fourth century BC. But once okay. you, once you on, you blow up the idea that you have a divine right of kings or it's going to be a hereditary monarch, whatever that is, and you start to elect representatives and, and the people, it's by definition innately an expansionary idea. So mm -hmm. bitter re reactionaries like Plato would say, you know, we're going to get to the point. He has Socrates say, I think in the Gorgias, we're going to get to the point where the dogs and the donkeys will vote. <laughs> they won't be happy until the dogs can vote because it's the idea that once you say, Aristotle had a, a really good point. He said, once you say that everybody is equal politically, then they want to be equal in every aspect of their lives. Mm -hmm. And that means economically, in a sense, of, and we're seeing it today, and in, in, in a, a quality of result rather than of opportunity. The, the tension there is fascinating because to, to hear you remind us that in uh, fourth or fifth century uh, Greece, um, it, the claim was made that by nature, no man is a slave. <clears throat> It, it rings in the ear. It, it sounds like something that would have been said much later, but it was actually said much earlier, illustrating what I think is Western civilization's very unique capacity for self-criticism starting at that time. They were very self-critical and critical conscience. And remember that really slavery was not based in the majority of cases on race. It was right. based on conquest or bad luck, being born to a slave or being in the wrong place at the wrong time when a city fell or you survived a battle. That made it very insidious because it was not burdened with any pseudoscience of racial inferiority or superiority. So if, if you were a slave, we have people, um, it's not just Aesop that were slaves, but 
people of different backgrounds. Plato reportedly was enslaved for a brief period. I don't know if that's true or not, but the idea was it was insidious. So it was an equal opportunity misfortune. So if you had a slave, for example, who was tutoring your kids in geometry, and you said, well, this is not fair. He's smarter than I am and my kids. Mm -hmm. he, people would just say, well, he's, a, he's, less, he's less fortunate. But when you tie race to slavery, and then you find people who are as astute or better qualified to do a particular task than their master class, then all of a sudden you say, this is not fair because you're basing slavery on the idea that we are natural slaves. That's why Aristotle's so obsessed with the idea that we have to have natural slaves, he says, because the institution cannot continue when it's just random. There's no there's no moral justification, and so once mm -hmm. you you try to create a moral justification, then that justification becomes fallacious when it can't be proved that one race is particularly innately better than another. What was the fate of citizenship uh, in Rome? Well, Rome was a little different in the sense that during the Republic it was Italian, and you had to be, as in Greece, at least one parent born in areas under Roman as the, as the city-state of Rome expanded or the entire Italian. But when the empire grew, when it was became a Mediterranean, 1 million square miles, 70 million people, then it was in the early third century AD that it expanded to everybody within the confines of Caracalla. I think it was 212 AD said, all people residing in under Roman jurisdictions who are residents shall be considered citizens. And that's because there were so many, the Romans discovered that when you have a large portion of the resident population that is not citizen, that are not citizen, and that was part of the problem with the Greeks, it was very hard to, to naturalize citizens. But when you have a large, uh, you lose revenue and you lose uh, allegiance and solidarity with, with the state. So they, they would constantly try to incorporate people and, and give them, bestow them citizenship under certain requirements if they, supposedly knew some Latin and they had lived there for a particular length of time. Um, so this kind of moves us toward things that have echoes in our day. Yeah. Is, is the possibility of citizenship, is it infinitely expandable or not? And in your uh, explanation, it seems that there's a kind of a natural place where citizenship works before which it doesn't work, after which it doesn't work. Um, is citizenship infinitely expandable? It is if there are certain guidelines or historically proven protocols that the state follows, and that is that allowing immigrants to come in, it should be a measured number and measured qualified by the number that you can assimilate uh, and integrate or intermarry rather rapidly, one or two generations. That the people should have some knowledge of the language to allow that to happen. Uh, that it should be diverse so that you don't have people coming in from one particular area or speaking one particular language and that they form enclaves. We've had that in the past in America with Eastern European or German immigration or Irish immigration, but uh, they were one-time things because they didn't have a contiguous border with the United States. It wasn't constant. And there has to be some idea of meritocracy. In other words, if people are following the law and applying as citizens legally, then they should have some advantage over the people who are not, mm -hmm. except or if they, somebody has a PhD in nuclear engineering, obviously you might 
want to prefer that person because he would be less of a hindrance ideally than other people. But when you have everybody coming from one area and from one large group and they're doing so illegally under illegal auspices and most people do not have a high school diploma or skills that will allow them to be self-supporting in a very competitive society, then you're by needs are gonna have a large social uh, welfare entitlement cost for those citizens. And so and I think that's where we are now today. So to have citizenship, you kind of have to have a civitas. You have to have a public thing which people have enough in common that citizenship becomes meaningful. Uh, you quoted in your, noted in your book that in 2020, during the Democratic presidential primaries, um, former South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg uh, was speaking in Spanish to some non-citizens, and he told them, that regardless of their illegal status in the country, this is your country too. And you noted that almost all the 2020 Democratic candidates agreed that they would ensure comprehensive uh, health and other benefits to incoming persons, uh, I guess, on, by virtue of their humanity without reference to their citizenship. Um, yeah, I, I, was, I mentioned that because I was troubled. I don't think he really believed that most people believe that or that they, they didn't really pay attention to the details. I know that... I was a resident, I lived in Greece three years in total, not continuously, but about all in aggregate three years. And I never felt that the Greek government owed me um, this, to extend the same rights as they did Greeks. And so I had to get a resident permit and it was right. very strict. And I felt that I was a guest in their country. I did not want to interfere in Greek politics. I didn't uh, write or opine. I felt that as a guest, I had certain restrictions on my residence. But this idea that somebody can cross the border and then have claims against the, the new pop, the host population, and that's literally true. Sometimes it's okay. I mean, I taught for 21 years a largely Hispanic population, but I was always curious why second generation American citizens of Mexican ancestry who were eligible for affirmative action, why that benefit was not why that benefit was extended to people who came from southern mexico to take one example from almost the day they crossed mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. i would have students who had been in the united states three or four years as resident aliens who came in illegally and yet they were eligible for affirmative action in a way that other people who were citizens were not I couldn't figure that out or they were they were eligible for in um they actually had preference over their citizen. I mentioned in the book, they did not have to pay out-of-state residency because they were a resident, even though they were not a citizen. And even though they were here as an illegal resident, they got about one-third, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, they got two-thirds discount when U.S. citizens, say, from Nevada or Utah or Oregon came to Cal State. System. Wow. Yeah, so... I'm, I'm thinking of a, of a reaction that I'm hearing in the back of my mind. <clears throat> I, I would pretend it this way. I, I'm getting huffy, uh, Victor. Why is it, should citizens have any different you know, benefits from, from just any other resident? That's not fair. Yeah, well, life's not fair. But the point mm -hmm. is that uh, for you to maintain your customs and traditions in that tenuous chain of generation to generation, link, 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 then you have to have some commonality. So you have to have a civic education where people within defined borders, they all, they all are on the same page in the sense, I don't mean politically or ideologically, but they have common reference. 
They know mm -hmm. what the 4th of July is. They know right. who Ulysses S. Grant was. They know what the Emancipation Proclamation was. They know what the Gettysburg Address was. They know who George Washington. But if you have so many residents and they have no commonalities with the majority population, and then what happens? Then you lose, and that increases, and especially if the, the host population then changes its own system to accommodate a growing number of people who are not familiar with it, then you attenuate your customs. And the result of it is that if you ask the average citizen today, why did the founders have an electoral college? They have no idea. There were no arguments for the electoral college. Mm -hmm. Why have we had a 150-year nine-person Supreme Court? What made people want to freeze the number at nine that we want to change now? Why did we have a 180-year filibuster? No one has any idea. So when I see somebody in Fresno County, I have no idea often if we have anything in common other right. than common humanity, because I don't know if they know where, anything about the history of Selma. I got my hair cut the other day and a person who had come here from Mexico four years ago asked me who owned the building 20 years ago, what the road was called, what was it like 20 years ago, and why did people not, why did they have to be citizens to vote, she said. Wow. I tried to explain all these things, but the, the point was difficult because she felt that there was no need for her to familiarize herself mm -hmm. with the country that she had, she had arrived at. Here's an interesting comment that we're getting from one of our participants um, online. Uh, uh, someone named Ray <clears throat> points out, he says, the Canadian province of Quebec requires language proficiency uh, to migrate or to uh, immigrate into the province of Quebec. <clears throat> Does that mean the Quebecois are nasty and exclusionary, or does it mean that they're trying to create a real uh, country in which citizenship can be meaningful? I think the latter. One of the mythologies that Americans operate on is that somehow we're reactionary compared to the world. But if you actually look at the number of countries that have what I would call uh, anchor baby, I know that's a controversial word, but an anchor baby idea that you, uh, if you are born in on the soil of the United States to two parents who are here illegally, then you're going to be a citizen and can anchor their application. That only exists very rarely in Europe, for example, if at all, two countries, I think. And the idea that uh, the host puts restrictions or responsibilities or requirements, uh, I think the United States asks the least of any country in the Western right. world. It really does. We it have may no be, background checks at all, and the two million people that this fiscal year have come across the border, especially in that time of pandemic. We don't ask them if they're vaccinated. We don't ask them if they're testing positive for COVID. We do ask citizens, four and a half million of them in the U.S. military and the federal workforce combined, that they must be vaccinated. Why? I don't know when we allow people, two million of them, to walk across the border without that. That's another example of making it more burdensome or more... Uh, difficult to be a citizen than a non-citizen resident. Yeah, that is kind of stunning. And of course, I also worry that those who wish to come to the United States, and of course, I welcome them, <clears throat> not only are they not um, required uh, to have those kind of, um, add to those qualities, but also sometimes our own education system teaches them, <clears throat> assimilates them not to a view of what makes America tick, <clears throat> but to a view of why America is especially toxic or pathological. Uh, when yeah. you 
bring yeah. millions of new immigrants in and the education system is designed to alienate them from their new host nation, you almost have a, a recipe for disaster. Yeah, you do. And it's all curious because you want to know either in the mind of the immigrant or the mind of the host. If that were true, then why in the world would we have more immigrants than all the rest of the country right. here combined? What what does somebody who where I live, most of the immigrants come from Oaxaca State. If somebody's from an impoverished Oaxaca State, and I know a lot of them that are, and they tell me that they did no respect in Oaxaca from state authorities. It's a very racist society in, wow. Mex in Mexico. They're indigenous people. They're mocked if they don't speak good Spanish. Many of them have an indigenous language, a uh, mix of tech type of dial uh, uh, version of Spanish, if at all related to Spanish and they feel that the bureaucracy is corrupt and so they come here and everything seems to get much better for them very quickly and yet they're told by the host that it's just the opposite so i don't know whether the host is so leisured or affluent they feel guilty and they want to fault their own society or it's sort of a virtue performance that they go through the motions but they themselves would never want to go live in oaxaca um, i don't know what it is, but it does seem that it's kind of a curse of Western civilization that when you combine market capitalism with constitutional government, you get a degree of affluence and freedom that's very hard to teach people where it came from and how it is to maintain and how aberrant, aberrant it is in the world. And you have to appreciate it and cultivate it. And so that's why we have all these books called The Suicide of the West or The Destruction mm. of Western, The Decline of the West, or The Fall of the West, because they see yeah. these, they look through history at Greece and Rome and the Florentine Republics yeah. and the Venice, Venice Republic. And they say, you know, yeah. do they have any idea Mussolini was in their future? Or they see the German Republic, does they have any idea Hitler was in their future, et cetera, et cetera, because it's not given that this very tenuous and fragile system is, is going to continue as it is. It sounds like you're saying, Victor, that if we had a world of open borders, a world in which um, one was really not a citizen of any particular local bigoted country, but instead just a citizen of the world, that it might not work out that well. But for some, some people, that's the utopia that they envision. I'm a citizen of the world, no borders anywhere, everything free flowing. Um, that, yeah, that's an, that's an ancient idea. Socrates said he was a cosmopolites, a citizen of the cosmos. But, you know, Diogenes did too. And Alexander used it for propaganda. Brotherhood of man, he said. He was going to unite all the peoples. And we know what Napoleon said. The EU has said it. It's usually uh, groups of people in free societies that for a variety of reasons or naivete or, or political advantage, whatever it is, they feel that they can uh, weld their system to a global system. But the problem with it is that we have 190 nations today and only about 45%. I know some people say it's 50, but it's about 40 at best if you talk about truly democratic societies are, are consensual. So we are going then, as Anthony Blinken, our Secretary of State, did about six weeks ago, invite the UN Commission on uh, human rights to adjudicate whether we're racist when in the past members of that commission have been China, Russia, uh, Iran, Unbelievable. North Korea. So that's a problem when you turn over American sovereignty to international groups. And it's very worrisome that it's, it's always elite driven people who have escaped 
the the necessities of daily living the davos crowd they're, they're engaged now in something called the great reset and which they say i think klaus schwab wrote a book covid and the great reset saying that under this emergency we have to have uniform global rates of taxation we've got to have diversity inclusion um equity czars uh, on all corporate boards worldwide and we have a diversity uh transgender all of these issues that are very controversial shall be imposed worldwide and who are the people who are talking like this it's the corporate elite the intellectual elite but they're not elected they're not uh, right they're not and you, responsible you you call them post-citizens yeah they are post-citizens they feel that they moved or transcended citizenship they have no allegiance so if you went to somebody in davos and you ask them an american who was visiting davos let's say he was from cambridge massachusetts or palo alto so you know davos pretty well do you know paris pretty well or london or shanghai they'd probably say yes if you said to them do you know anything about sacramento california <laughs> or bakersfield or bakersfield yeah, yeah 200 <laughs> yard miles from where you live no they have no interest and that was clear by our policies that sort of hollowed out the interior of the United States. And uh, so a lot of globalism is a euphemism for the spread of American capitalism and then the naive follow up where they're going to harmonize politics and culture in the age of they think it's possible because they have access to cell phones and the Internet and just global technology. They think you will unite people as if, you know, when I go overseas, I think I've been to every Arab country except, well, I think I've been, I haven't been to Yemen, but when you go there and you see somebody with tennis shoes and a University of California t-shirt and he's got a cell phone, he says, hi, yeah, or okay, that superficial similarity does not mean that he he necessarily believes in constitutional government right. or freedom of speech or equality of the sexes. But a lot of people make that that mistake that superficial cultural affinities right uh, are the same as political affinities um you said in uh chapter six on globalists <clears throat> this is from page 272 it happened to just jump out at me uh, victor you say <clears throat> so globalization while not new is hardly history's norm its transnationalism is less natural and requires more violence not less to enforce its inconsistencies and paradoxes on too many different restless peoples. So this, this goes against the grain of so many people I know who would say, well, it would be a utopia if we just had a borderless world. Everyone was a citizen of the world. Um, there'd be less violence. We'd all get along. Um, but you're saying that to make transnationalism work requires more violence. This is an interesting uh thought. Explain. Read 1984, the vision that Orwell warned us about was I think there were three countries in the entire world where Oceania, East Asia had aggregated all of these countries in together. And they were to to get that aggregation, they had a level of thought control and intrusion to a person's personal life to make them conform to a very unnatural uh, situation. So if you know, under that uh, that scheme, if from Chile all the way up to northern Canada, we were all of one country. What do I have in common with somebody in Santiago or somebody up in the Arctic? My Circle? humanity. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I think a, lo a long philosophical tradition said that humanity can be a very scary thing. 
And so we don't have any common traditions. We have no way of knowing whether these people believe in constitutional government or not. So it's, it's, it's the more that you expand the number of people, the more work it takes, especially diverse people. So that's why their ideas of borders are very important. When you hike over in Greece, and if you go from Argos to Sparta or Thebes to take two examples into Athens, you can see where the ancient border was. There's usually towers, et cetera. But the thing that strikes you is the land is very poor. There's not necessarily a river, sometimes there is. There's no natural boundary, but people fought over this um, metcoria, they called it, the, the area in between. And why did they fight over it? Because they felt that if they did not have a delineated border, they did not have a state because within those borders that were secure, they could create their own system of government and they could get everybody, so to speak, on the same page. And without it, it was just a fluid situation that would break down. And that's what sort of happened. People always say, what happened to Rome? And there's, a, you know, I think a scholar in Germany pointed out there was over 220 reasons published for why it fell. But among the, the most convincing are it had no borders anymore. And people from uh, the Vandals, the Viscos, the Oscos, uh, the Huns, they went across the Danube and at Rhine at will. And nobody could keep them out. And they had very different ideas of what Rome should be. And they prevailed. Uh, we have someone with us on the call uh, uh, who made this interesting comment. Gina <clears throat> writes to me uh, on our chat box here. She says, I found it very disturbing when on the State Department website, an American Foreign Service officer said she was raising her children to be, quote, citizens of the world. Uh, yeah, it is scary. Barack Obama said that, remember, in his Berlin speech when he was running for office. I'm, a, I'm an American, but I'm a citizen of the world. I don't know if that's just a banal, banal thing to say that he meant well, he was a common human, but if he meant that he was a citizen of the world, I surely do not want German law here in the United States. I've been to Germany a number of times. It's, it's a much more intrusive type of uh, right. government than our own. With historical so, precedent for that. Yes, with historical precedence for that. And uh, so usually people who say they're citizens of the world have certain things in common. They tend to travel a lot. Uh, they're very left-wing, they're very wealthy, they're affluent, they're leisured, and they they have this, what I'm getting at is once you have a society where a person doesn't worry where their food comes next week or how they can put fuel in their automobile, but all of the necessities of life are guaranteed because of their income or their capital, then they feel that they can speculate where most people are on the razor's edge. And for them, life is surviving one more day and they're very happy that they can do that in the United States and they don't wanna risk not being able to do that. So in other words, it's those with a certain level of wealth and insulation from reality have the luxury to indulge in the fantasy of a borderless utopia. Yeah, they do. And you can see it even on related issues, defund the police and we're starting to see that in these areas, mostly in blue states and mostly in affluent areas, Portland, Seattle, but particularly Los Angeles and San Francisco, when you defund the police or you consider felonies mere misdemeanors or you don't mm. arrest people or you don't indict them or you don't incarcerate them when they're convicted, then you send a message that uh, crime is not a very big deal. And as long as it 
affects the poor, nobody's spoken out. But just in the last three weeks, we see these high-end stores in Walnut Creek, in mm -hmm. Beverly Hills, looted. We see a very prominent socialite African-American woman in Beverly Hills murdered. We see college students around uh, in Philadelphia, Columbia student in New York killed. We see uh, a private party in Pacific Palisades raided. We see LA celebrities and athletes uh, followed home in their nice prestigious cars. But then there's the this sudden thing, well, this wasn't supposed to happen to me. I'm left wing, I'm the architect. Why would a criminal pay back my liberality with danger and violence? And the, and the answer is they're human. And right. there's a large number, and there always will be a large number of the criminally intended that if there's not a deterrence in society at large, they're going to take advantage of the weak and the vulnerable. Is that called getting mugged by reality? Yeah, it is. <laughs> you said at one point, when residents and citizens are equally Americans, then the place called America itself, in a sense, no longer exists and becomes a fantasy place, a no place, <clears throat> even yeah. a dystopia. I think there's parts of California that are that way today. I I could within a 40 mile radius of my home that I'm looking out the window now, I could go to areas where the English language is not spoken, where all the stores signs are in Spanish, where most of the population is not speaking English on the street and where the customs and traditions are very different than the United States within the United States. And I can tell you that when I was a little boy, I went to Kingsburg, California. It's a little community. It's a very Swedish community. And most people spoke Swedish. My grandfather would take me in the bank and he spoke Swedish. But there was a sense that that was a doomed idea. And if you all wanted to buy an old Volvo or you wanted to buy Electrolux vacuum cleaner, that was quaint. But Sweden was not going to endure. And the reason it didn't endure was that there was not a steady stream of millions of Swedes coming illegally in the United States. It was a it was very hard to get in the United States. You had to have money to get here. You had to assimilate. You had to learn English. There was no state entitlement. And so a lot people felt very different. They didn't want to recreate Sweden. And there was the sense that the poor from Sweden, who I think my grandfather said his his father had farmed rocks. That's all there was in Sweden was gold wow. and rocks. And he came to the San Joaquin Valley of California and he said it was paradise. Mm -hmm. There were no rocks and the weather was perfect for farming. Mm -hmm. And he was so happy to be here. And of course, he fought in World War I. He was gassed at Bella Wood. He was an invalid for most a lot of his life. And he inculcated that idea, I think, among his children, my parents, that uh, we're very lucky to live in the United States given the alternative, and you don't have to be perfect to be good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <clears throat> we, uh, one of our viewers just sent me a note saying, why shouldn't citizenship have rites of passage similar to other life events, <clears throat> baptisms, marriage, etc.? Immigrants who passed through Ellis Island spoke of the process with pride, he notes. Yeah, they did. <clears throat> What's really worrisome in addition is that there were a number of differences between a resident and a citizen. We're not talking about the early frontier when there, you know, it was just, there was not very many people and there were not, there wasn't law. There was marshals in the next province. But what I'm getting at is that it used to be very clear that if you were a citizen, you alone could leave or enter your country without 
restrictions. And now I think if I left my passport coming into SFO on the plane, I wouldn't get out that day. But you can cross the southern border pretty much with impunity if you're a resident. Uh, I think it used to be true on the federal level, it still is that you cannot hold office and not vote. On the state and local level, you can now vote in many jurisdictions if you're not a citizen. And there are people who are, are clamoring to have people hold office at the local state who are not citizens. You're, we've known from court rulings that you don't have to be a citizen to receive welfare payments, entitlements, et cetera. Military long ago allowed people to be not just uh, residents, but illegal residents. Mm -hmm. And so you can be an illegal resident, as I said earlier, and qualify for a tuition discount at a university in California, public university. So I think we're basically down, to tell you the truth, with one distinction, uh, and that is in national elections and in national offices, only citizens can can participate. And I think that's going to be attacked. That's in that's been federal law, but we'll see. Yeah, how will that stand? <clears throat> we're going to find out. In yeah. your chapters five and and six about evolutionaries and globalists, <clears throat> you narrate some of the things that these advocates of essentially post-citizenship, <clears throat> what these advocates are pushing for. So for example, <clears throat> you mentioned that um, both the, the electoral college, the elimination of electoral college and ranked choice voting are tools of evolutionists, as you call them, uh, to further efface the constitutional system. Um, you quoted democracy scholar Larry Diamond. I remember reading him in graduate school. Diamond says, <clears throat> I'm reading the quote from you, once Ranked choice voting is adopted with its greater incentives to moderation and diversity in our electoral process. Other democratic reforms may become more achievable. Uh, a colleague of mine, and I like Larry a lot, but uh, we had an actual laboratory test of ranked voting in the New York mayor's race, if you remember. We did, indeed. and we didn't, and we did not get the results for weeks on end. And mm -hmm. it was a mess of tabulation, and there were cries from almost every candidate that they were cheated. And it, it just layers layer, it just adds layer and layer of difficulty, complexity to voting. And it doesn't really represent um, a clear choice on the part of the of, of the voter. And so I, I don't think that's gonna work and it's, it's never worked anywhere, but it, it's left chaos in its wake. And so uh, all of these efforts of ranked voting or to give more votes to people who have less money or to get rid of two senators from the state because people in say California have to have more people for, for senator than Wyoming does. It only has about a quarter million. They all are, are driven by one idea and that is a quality of result. Mm -hmm. And that's not what the founders thought was important. They thought it was the protection from government and the equality of opportunity. But uh, that's why we have this pessimistic tradition, starting with Plato and going into Hobbes, and then the German nihilists like Spengler, or Nietzsche, Spengler, Hegel. They all felt that inevitably, uh, as these democratic societies mature, then they take on the responsibilities of making a person, as Aristotle said, again, equal in every aspect of their lives. And that requires a level of coercion because people are not born equally. I don't mean just smart or stupid or mean or nice, but some people have poor health. Some people have different aims that are not conducive to, to, 
doing well economically. Some people inherit money, some people don't. But the idea that the government can adjudicate all that and filter it all out, it means they're going to have to be so large and powerful and, and punitive that it just can't work and it doesn't work. And it leads to communism or totalitarianism. We know how and it, it, inevitably you have something like Pol Pot or the Great Terror in, in Russia or Mao's 70 million dead. There's no other way to do it. There's a kind of inherent logic <clears throat> that comes out from under this idea of comprehensive universal equality, <clears throat> borderless equality. You said it requires more violence rather than less. And now I'm starting to see how, because there's so many natural differences and distinctions and concerns that in order to really produce a homogeneous result, it's going to take a lot of force. So we had yeah. the, so the Socialist International uh, was a very good case in point. <clears throat> they wanted internationalism, not just nationalism, uh, and that led to concentrations of power so as to eradicate the vestiges of the bourgeois mentality and the nationalist mentalities had to be extirpated and to do so required force. It scares me. It, it does, and uh, it always has required force. Uh, and there are far too many differences, both accidental or irrelevant even, that, that the state assumes that it can it even it out, it's going to have to kill a lot of people or force them to do things they do not want to do. But ultimately, it's always a leveling down. And we saw that there was a letter the other day from a group of distinguished physicists and mathematicians that were deploring the idea that they're requiring fewer standardized tests and fewer classical mathematics courses in K-12. Mm -hmm. And they basically said, if you read their letter very carefully, it said, you know, they, they're saying that the level of affluence and sophistication and technology that everyone enjoys is based on the ability to select people who have natural aptitudes in mathematics and science. And for some reason, not to use those barometers, but to, you know, use woke criteria is, is going to mean a less meritocratic. And if you have a less meritocratic system, where you adjudicate on the basis of appearance or superficial ethnic or racial identifications or gender, then ultimately the, the quality of life for everybody is going to be challenged. Uh, you may know, uh, as a Californian, as some of our viewers may know, that the state of California is now advancing a new mathematics curriculum <clears throat> for the public schools here, mm -hmm. uh, which would pivot upon uh, social justice and equity concerns, including teaching guidelines, for example, which encourage students uh, teachers to to get away from the idea that there are right and wrong answers in math because that would be somehow racially or white supremacist. Uh, and so we, yeah. we've actually got a, an open letter signed by 1,200 uh, mathematicians and uh, technology people here in Cal California, academics represented by, oh, some 62 institutions trying to resist this new uh, woke mathematics curriculum because if it were implemented it would it would disadvantage most greatly those who need to move up in the world by mastering the hard science of math good and you know the architects of that proposed law if you ask them you're going to fly a 777 today and on one in one plane it's going the navigation system and the aeronautic systems were designed by a meritocratic uh, engineering team that was not as diverse as you may like. On the other, however, the qualification for that team that designed that plane was based on diversity. Which would you get on? And most of the people <laughs> uh, would get on the plane that was meritocratic. 
Yeah, exactly. And the common good is far better served in that way. And, yeah. and it, that principle applies to a lot of other things, too. For example, we were talking about the Electoral College. I just want to go there for a few minutes. Um, people's objections nowadays, at least among the post-citizen global type thinkers, uh, their idea is that, well, somehow the only thing that's really fair is for everyone to have the exact same amount of input. Uh, and so the Electoral College isn't fair because, as you say, some states get uh, have more population, but they get the same number of senators, and therefore the, their votes in the Electoral College are not perfectly reflective of uh, the number of individuals. Um, failing to see, I think, uh, that the Electoral College actually is designed to serve the common good and justice through stability by stabilizing the voting system um, and representing other factors other than simply majority whim. So the Electoral College, in effect, represents history, does it not? It does. It's integral to the idea of a two-party system because to get enough support to win the, the Electoral College vote, you have to have a national party. And that means you can't be a regional party or a local party. Mm -hmm. So we don't have like Europeans do or the Israelis do 30 or 40 parties. We have Thank two, goodness. Yeah. And we get a pretty clear result pretty quickly. We don't have, as Israel did, forming election after election after election to get a recent majority. And physical space is important. So our candidates actually know what Wyoming looks like or Utah. If we didn't have the Electoral College, people would just go to Los Angeles, San Francisco, uh, Dallas, Fort Worth, and the East Coast, and they would never campaign anywhere else because it wouldn't be logical. You would just need the sheer number of bodies. And the way that demography works in America, we have about half the population lives in those two coastal corridors, and yet 85%, 90% of the population in between is the other 50%. So that other 50% would never have any contact with the issues or firsthand or the candidates. Or They'd campaign. be disenfranchised. It would, it would. And we've only had five instances where the Electoral College was at odds with the popular vote, which is pretty amazing. Usually they are the same. And remember when people did complain, uh, they said, well, as Al Gore did, I won the popular vote. And, and I should be present, but he ran a campaign based on the idea the popular vote was not going to determine the president. So he adopted a less successful strategy to get a majority of electoral votes. So you don't, he was perfectly happy to run under the system until he lost. This whole talk of the blue wall was, I went back when I was researching the book and found out that it was euphoric in the 1990s and 2000s from the left, the praise of the blue wall that before you ever started an election, the left had in the bag the three large electoral states of New York, Illinois, and California. And more importantly, they had now, since the Bush era, had got Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and they would never go back again. And so- As it, as it seemed. Yeah, as it seemed. And then only when the blue wall fell, it was the idea that the system, and that it's the same thing we never had a, a movement during the Warren court to pack the court. Nobody on the left said, I don't like Earl Warren, we gotta get 15 justices. Or nobody said when there was a supermajority in 2010 of senators, we have to let, um, we have to let uh, Washington DC and Puerto Rico in so we can get four more senators. Or nobody said, let's get rid of the filibuster when Senator Obama was in a minority who tried to filibuster Justice Alito's appointment. 
it's probably fair to point out that uh, prior to the 2016 uh, election, uh, former president, former candidate Donald Trump had also repeatedly expressed his opposition to the Electoral College. Uh, he later discovered its virtues. Yeah, I think, I think he, he later discovered that was an unwise thing to say. Yeah. Or, well, now tell us about, uh, you know, one last uh, little initiative that's a big threat to this. Um, some of your so-called post-citizens are advocating um, nullification of the Constitution. Now, it used to be that our study of American history led us to feel that nullification was a, by states was a bad thing because it had been used to bolster uh, perhaps some bad things, to bolster the position of slavery in the South, um, at least indirectly. Now we have people advocating nullification through this thing called the national popular vote. Um, tell yeah. us a little bit about that and why you think it's a threat. Nullification, going back to the 1830 tariff, 30s tariff crisis in South Carolina and the the, era, the landscape before the Civil War, everybody understood it was a bad idea that a state on its own could pick and choose which federal laws that it cho chose to follow. But then what started the modern nullification rule was the left uh, anger over uh, immigration enforcement. And so they decided that individual entities, cities, counties, and entire states could be sanctuary cities, and federal immigration law could be nullified. And they do that today. And so ICE is not contacted, and it's not allowed to pick up somebody at the jail. Okay. And then they decided, well, this is a pretty good idea, nullification, forgetting that George Wallace in 1963 had stood in the door of the University of Alabama and said, you know, segregation forever, and I'm not letting an African-American come in here, and I don't care the state of Alabama trumps federal laws. Of course, they federalized the Alabama National Guard and removed him by force. But the point I'm making is that they thought it was a pretty good idea when they disagreed with uh, federal law. And so the National Voter Compact said, you know what, it's so hard to change the Constitution Within it, through the amendment process, that why don't we just go to the state legislatures and have them each vote to nullify um, the Constitution so and follow the national vote and not their state tally. So on a closed election, if Ohio votes uh, for a Republican, but a Democrat wins the national vote, then the voters of Ohio have pledged not to follow the winner in their state. And see, the beauty of they thought of the system was you only need enough to get 270 electoral votes. You don't need every state. And as I, I haven't checked the last two months, but I think they're about 80% of the way there. They have something like 250 electoral votes now. And so they want to nullify. But notice it doesn't work in reverse. There's some counties in Virginia now that have said, yeah, we're going to nullify federal law, but we're going to do it in such a way uh, nullify the law, but we're going to do it in such a way that we think it represents the original constitution. So we're going to nullify a Virginia gun law. And then any federal law that we decide doesn't reflect the second amendment, we're just not going to follow. So in the same, I think there's a county, Utah County in Utah, where you go in and actually buy a gun and the county says, we're not going to uh, even go through the motions of federal gun registration. Wow. And we, we dare the, the federal. And there are people who have said it in some of the more conservative states. We're not going to follow the Endangered Species Act. If you're building a, you know, uh, a warehouse and there's a three spotted toad nest by your foundation hole. So why just, you know, pour cement over the poor lizard or something. 
And that's where it's going to end. I mean, the left has to see that they let the genie out of the box and they're either going to recover it and say no one including us can nullify federal law or we're going to have a succession or it's going to continue we'll see um we've got one of our friends from overseas who just tossed in this nice comment uh, he says uh uh professor uh hansen you are gold so i thought you should just hear that one while Thank we're you. talking here um Sometimes and i feel more like uh, <laughs> pig iron Oh dear. Well, I understand. Yeah, you're you're kind of a voice in the wilderness sometimes on these things, and yeah. uh, that's why I wanted to have a chance to talk with you. Maybe we'll, we'll let one of our friends who's online here named Judith have kind of the last word or at least the okay. last qu question. She she says, um, uh, "Congratulations for having brought all these aspects contributing to the current scene to light. Why are we all so helpless to do anything about these profound changes in society?" Judith asks. Yeah, I think that we forget sometimes that the traditional American is in the majority and you can see it. I just looked at the USA Suffolk poll. Joe Biden's popularity is about 41% and Kamala Harris is about 28% historic low for any vice president in the modern era. But more importantly, it was the issues. And on all the issues that are controversial, like open borders, critical race theory, the skedaddle from Afghanistan, the inflation, uh, the price of gas, energy development, the left is on the wrong side of the equation and, and big time. I mean, they're polling, those issues are polling about 45%, the Biden issues. So why does she have this sense, as I do, of despair? And that is that one thing that Republicans did or conservatives or conservative independents did is they they fled from the institutions or they ceded them over to a small, well-organized kind of neo-Trotskyite group. So if you look at where you get your communications, the internet, our Silicon Valley, our social media, or the network news, or the major newspapers, uh, or where you get your entertainment from television or Hollywood, or whether you want to watch professional sports, the NBA, the Major League Baseball Association, or you want to hear a CEO from corporate America or a Wall Street grandee, or you want to look at, talk to a foundational head. And I could go on and on, but all of those institutions are controlled by the left and they have enormous power. If you look at the zip codes by um, congressional representation or zip codes uh, by wealth or wealth by congressional districts, the wealthiest areas in the United States, residents or members of a congressional district, are all blue or left wing. Fortune 400, I went through the Fortune 400 when I was doing this book and it was just phenomenally, uh, it was just phenomenally scary how many of the multi-billionaires are A, left wing, and their wealth is not from agriculture, construction, manufacturing, timber, mining, fuel, etc. It's from high tech, it's from finance, it's from insurance. It's from media, and that's new. So the left is the power is the party of the very wealthy and the very poor, and it's captured all the institutions by which we can generate influence. And they're much more influential and powerful than their numbers suggest they are. So we and have to, to organize and, and vote these people out and hold them accountable. I think conservatives don't like boycotting. They don't like canceling. They don't. They don't do those things. But if it's done to them enough, they're going to have to find some way to react in kind. 
Yes, voting for sure. But also I'm thinking in your description of the ways that the, shall we say, the, the meaning generating industries are controlled by one ideological set. Uh, it, it's important that those who want to think about it uh, in other ways don't abandon those institutions. I mean, it's very sad that higher education is so largely dominated by an ideological agenda, but it doesn't follow from that that one should turn away from those institutions. One should participate. One should contest. One should speak. I think that's uh, important. You can't, I think the same thing about California. If everybody leaves California, then it's right. hopeless. And I, I work at a university where there are theme dorms predicated on race, graduation ceremonies predicated on race, safe spaces predicated on race. I think even, I think we're going to get to the point as other colleges do to be able to select your roommate based on racial preferences. Oh, wow. So Sounds like that, George Wallace segregation yeah. forever. Well, that's happening at Claremont where people have discussed it in other universities. So you have to, you have to use a precise vocabulary that's racist. And I think the left has hijacked our vocabulary, but we have to be very clear that the whole woke Kennedy movement is based on racism. The idea that you can be racist to stop racism or discriminate to stop discrimination is, is bankrupt. Uh, I would say that Victor Davis Hanson is doing his part. Um, I encourage you to get a copy of this book that's behind me here, The Dying Citizen, just published two months ago. Um, we're grateful for you for to you for taking the effort and to speak your speak your mind. Thank you for doing that, Victor Davis Hanson. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. I do encourage everyone to turn to our website, independent.org. We've assembled a lot of information for informed citizens to use. We actually have an archive of 59 essays written by Victor Davis Hanson, which you can find on our website. So I encourage you to visit us at independent.org. And I thank once again our viewers and Professor Hanson. We'll look forward to seeing you next time. Bye, everybody.